Hello, and thank you for joining me. We are going to be moving on to chapter 19 in A Tree Grows in Brooklyn today. Chapter 19. Francie expected great things from school. Since vaccination taught her instantly the difference between left and right, she thought that school would bring forth even greater miracles. She thought she'd come home from school that first day knowing how to read and write. But all she came home with was a bloody nose, gained by an older child slamming her head down on the stone rim of the water trough when she had tried to drink from the faucets that did not gush forth soda water after all. Francie was disappointed because she had to share a seat and desk meant only for one with another girl. She had wanted a desk to herself. She accepted with pride the pencil the monitor passed out to her in the morning and reluctantly surrendered it to another monitor at three o'clock. She had been in school but half a day when she knew that she would never be a teacher's pet. That privilege was reserved for a small group of girls. Girls with freshly curled hair crisp clean pinafores and new silk hair bows they were the children of the prosperous storekeepers of the neighborhood fancy noticed how miss briggs the teacher beamed on them and seated them in the choicest places in the front row these darlings were not made to share seats Miss Briggs' voice was gentle when she spoke to these fortune-favored few and snarling when she spoke to the great crowd of unwashed. Francie, huddled with the other children of her kind, learned more that first day than she realized. She learned of the class system of a great democracy. She was puzzled and hurt by teacher's attitude. Obviously, the teacher hated her and others like her for no reason than that they were what they were. Teacher acted as though they had no right to be in the school, but that she was forced to accept them and was doing so with as little grace as possible. She begrudged them the few crumbs of learning she threw at them. Like the doctor at the health center, she too acted as though they had no right to live. It would seem as if all the unwanted children would stick together and be one against the things that were against them, but not so. They hated each other as much as the teacher hated them. They aped teacher's snarling manner when they spoke to each other. There was always one unfortunate whom the teacher singled out and used for a scapegoat. This poor child was the nagged one, the tormented one, the one on whom she vented her spinsterly spleen. As soon as a child received this dubious recognition, the other children turned on him and duplicated the teacher's torments. Characteristically, they fawned on those close to the teacher's heart. Maybe they figured they were nearer to the throne that way. 
3,000 children crowded into this ugly, brutalizing school that had facilities for only 1,000. Stories, dirty stories, went the rounds of the children. One of them was that Miss Pfeiffer, a bleached blonde woman with a high giggle, went down to the basement to sleep with the assistant janitor those times when she put a monitor in charge and explained that she had to step out to the office. Another, passed around by little boys who had been victims, was that the lady principal, a hard-bitten, heavy, cruel woman of middle years who wore sequin-decorated dresses and smelled always of raw gin, got recalcitrant boys into her office and made them take down their pants so she could flay their naked buttocks with a rattan cane. She whipped the little girls through their dresses. Of course, corporal punishment was forbidden in the schools, but who outside knew? Who would tell? Not the whipped children, certainly. It was a tradition in the neighborhood that if a child reported that he had been whipped in school, he would receive a second home whipping because he had not behaved in school. So the child took his punishment and kept quiet, leaving well enough alone. The ugliest thing about these stories was that they were all sordidly true. Brutalizing is the only adjective for the public schools of that district around 1908 and 09. Child psychology had not been heard of in Williamsburg in those days. Teaching requirements were easy. Graduation from high school and two years at teacher's training school. Few teachers had the true vocation for their work. They taught because it was one of the few jobs open to them, because it was better paying than factory work, because they had a long summer vacation, because they got a pension when they retired. They taught because no one wanted to marry them. Married women were not allowed to teach in those days. Hence, most of the teachers were women made neurotic by starved love instincts. These barren women spent their fury on other women's children in a twisted, authoritative manner. The cruelest teachers were those who had come from homes similar to those of the poor children. It seemed that in their bitterness towards those unfortunate little ones, they were somehow exercising their own fearful background. Of course, not all of the teachers were bad. Sometimes one who was sweet came along, one who suffered with the children and tried to help them. But these women did not last long as teachers. Either they married quickly and left the profession, or they were hounded out of their jobs by fellow teachers. The problem of what was delicately called leaving the room was a grim one. The children were instructed to go before they left home in the morning and then to wait until lunch hour. They were supposed to be, there was supposed to be a time at recess but few children were able to take advantage of that. Usually, the press of the crowd prevented a child's getting near the washrooms. If he was lucky enough to get there, where there were but 10 lavatories for 500 children, 
he'd find the places preempted by the ten most brutalized children in the school. They'd stand in the doorways and prevent entrance to all comers. They were deaf to the piteous pleas of the hordes of tormented... Excuse me. They were deaf to the piteous pleas of the hordes of tormented children who swarmed before them. A few exacted a fee of a penny, which few children were able to pay. The overlords never relaxed their hold on the swinging doors until the bell clanged the end of recess. No one ever ascertained what pleasure they derived from this macabre game. They were never punished, since no teacher ever entered the children's washrooms. No child ever snitched. No matter how young he was, he knew that he mustn't squeal. If he tattled, he knew he would be tormented almost to death by the one who he reported. So this evil game went on and on. Technically, a child was permitted to leave the room if he asked permission. There was a system of coy evasion. One finger held aloft meant that a child wished to go out but a short time. Two fingers meant desire for a longer stay, but the harassed and unfeeling teachers assured each other that this was just a subterfuge for a child to get out of the classroom for a little while. They knew the child had ample opportunity at recess and at lunchtime. Thus, they settled things among themselves. Of course, Francie noted, the favored children, the clean, the dainty, the cared for in the front rows were allowed to leave at any time. But that was different somehow. For the rest of the children, half of them learned to adjust their functions to the teacher's ideas of such things, and the other half became chronic pants wetters. It was Aunt Sissy who fixed up the leaving the room business for Francie. She had not seen the children since Katie and Johnny had told her she was not to visit the house again. She was lonesome for them. She knew they had started school, and she just had to know how they were getting along. It was in November, work was slack, and Sissy was laid off. She sauntered down the school street just as school was letting out. If the children reported meeting her, it would seem like an accident, she figured. She saw Neely first in the crowd. A bigger boy snatched his cap off, trampled on it, and ran away. Neely turned to a smaller boy and did the same to his cap. Sissy grabbed Neely's arm, but with a raucous cry, he twisted loose and ran down the street. With poignancy, Sissy realized that he was growing up. Francie saw Sissy and put her arms around her right there in the street and kissed her. Sissy took her into a little candy store and treated her to a penny chocolate soda. Then she made Francie sit down on a stoop and tell her all about school. Francie showed her the primer and her homework book with block letters in it. Sissy was impressed. She looked long into the child's thin face and noticed that she was shivering. She saw that she was inadequately dressed against the raw November day in a threadbare cotton dress, ragged little sweater, and thin cotton stockings. 
she put her arm around her and held her close to her own life warmth. Francie, baby, you're trembling like a leaf. Francie had never heard that expression, and it made her thoughtful. She looked at the little tree growing out of the concrete on the side of the house. There were still a few dried leaves clinging to it. One of them rustled dryly in the wind, trembling like a leaf. She stored the phrase away in her mind, trembling. What's the matter? Sissy asked. You're ice cold. Francie wouldn't tell at first, but after being coaxed, she buried her shame-hot face in Sissy's neck and whispered something to her. Oh my, said Sissy. No wonder you're cold. Why didn't you ask to... Teacher never looks at us when we raise our hands. Oh well, don't worry about it. It could happen to anyone. It happened to the Queen of England when she was a little girl. But had the Queen been so shamed and sensitive about it? Francie wept quietly and rakingly, tears of shame and fear. She was afraid to go home, afraid that Mama would make scornful shame of her. Your Mama won't scold you. Such an accident could happen to any little girl. Don't say I told you, but your mama wet her pants when she was little, and your grandma did too. It's nothing new in the world, and you're not the first one it happened to. But I'm too big. Only babies do that. Mama will make shame on me in front of Neely. Tell her right out before she finds out for herself, and promise never to do it again. She won't shame you then. I can't promise, because it might happen again, because teacher don't let us go. From now on, your teacher, teacher will let you leave the room any time you have to. You believe Aunt Sissy, don't you? Yes. But how do you know? I'll burn a candle in church about it. Francie was consoled with the promise. When Francie went home, Katie did a little routine scolding, but Francie was armored against it in the light of what Sissy had told her about the cycle of wedding. The next morning, ten minutes before school started, Sissy was in that classroom confronting the teacher. There's a little girl named Francie Nolan in your room, she started out. Francis Nolan, corrected Miss Briggs. Is she smart? Yes. Is she good? She had better be. Sissy brought her face closer to Miss Briggs. Her voice went a tone lower and was gentler than before, but for some reason Miss Briggs backed away. I just asked you, is she a good girl? Yes, she is, said Teacher hurriedly. I happen to be her mother, lied Sissy. No, yes. Anything you want to know about the child's work, Miss Nolan? Did it ever occur to you, lied Sissy, that Francie's got kidney trouble? Kidney what? The doctor said that if she wants to go and some people don't let her go, she's liable to drop right down dead from overloaded kidneys. Surely you're exaggerating. How would you like her to drop dead in this room? 
Naturally, I wouldn't. But, and how would you like to get a ride to the station house in the pie wagon and stand up in front of this here doctor and the judge and say you wouldn't let her leave the room? Was Sissy lying? Miss Briggs couldn't tell. It was the most fantastic thing. Yet, the woman spoke these sensational things in the calmest, softest voice she had ever heard. At this moment, Sissy happened to look out the window and saw a burly cop sauntering by. She pointed. See that cop? Miss Briggs nodded. That's my husband. Francis's father? Who else? Sissy threw up in the window and yelled, Yoo-hoo! Johnny! The astonished cop looked up. She blew him a great kiss. For a split second, he thought it was some love-starved old maid teacher gone crazy. Then, his native masculine conceit assured him that it was one of the younger teachers, who had long had a crush on him and had finally screwed up enough courage to make a passionate overture. He responded to the occasion, blew her a return kiss with a hammy fist, tipped his hat gallantly, and sauntered off down his beat, whistling at the devil's ball. Sure, I'm a devil amongst the ladies, he thought. I am that, and me with six kids at home. Miss Briggs's eyes bugged out in astonishment. He had been a handsome cop and strong. Just then, one of the little golden girls came in with a beribboned box of candy for teacher. Miss Briggs gurgled with pleasure and kissed the child's satin pink cheek. Sissy had a mind like a freshly honed razor. In a flash, she saw which way the wind blew. She saw it blew against children like Francie. Look, she said, I guess you don't think we got lots of money. I'm sure I never. We're not people that put on. Now Christmas is coming, she bribed. Maybe, conceded Miss Briggs. I haven't always seen Frances when she raised her hand. Where did she sit that you don't see her so good? Teacher indicated a dark back seat. Maybe if she sat up front more, you could see her better. The seating arrangements are all set. Christmas is coming, warned Sissy coyly. I'll see what I can do. See then, and see that you see good. Sissy walked to the door, then turned. Because not only is Christmas coming, but my husband is a cop who will come up here and beat the hell out of you if you don't treat her right. Francie had no more trouble after that parent-teacher conference. No matter how timorously her hand went up, Miss Briggs happened to see it. She even let her sit in the first row, first seat for a while. But when Christmas came, and no expensive Christmas present came with it, Francie was again relegated to the dark back of the room. Neither Francie nor Katie ever learned of Sissy's school visit. But Francie was never shamed again in that way, and if Miss Briggs did not treat her with kindness, at least she didn't nag at her. Of course, Miss Briggs knew that what that woman had told her was ridiculous. Yet, 
What was the use of taking chances? She didn't like children, but she was no fiend. She wouldn't want to see a child drop dead before her eyes. A few weeks later, Sissy had one of the girls in her shop write a postcard message for her to Katie. She asked her sister to let bygones be bygones and permit her to come to the house, at least to see the children once in a while. Katie ignored the card. Mary Romilly came over to intercede for Sissy. "'What is there that is bitter between you and your sister?' she asked Katie. "'I cannot tell you,' replied Katie. "'Forgiveness,' said Mary Romilly, "'is a gift of high value, yet its cost is nothing.' "'I have my own ways,' said Katie. "'I,' agreed her mother. She sighed deeply and said no more. Katie wouldn't admit it, but she missed Sissy. She missed her reckless good sense and her clear way of straightening out troubles. Evie never mentioned Sissy when she came to see Katie, and after that one attempt at reconciliation, Mary Romilly never mentioned Sissy's name again. Katie got news of her sister through the official accredited family reporter, the insurance agent. All of the Romleys were insured by the same company, and the same agent collected the nickels and dimes from each of the sisters weekly. He brought news, carried gossip, and was the round-robin messenger of the family. One day, he brought news that Sissy had given birth to another child, which he had been unable to ensure since it had lived but two hours. Katie felt ashamed of herself at last for being so bitter against poor Sissy. Next time you see my sister, she told the collector, tell her not to be such a stranger. The collector relayed the message of forgiveness and Sissy came back into the Nolan family again.